continuing our study of 1 Timothy. So most scholars believe that chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy are actually instructions and guidelines for the church. And of course we know that while we can apply these principles and glean from them, we can't do so at the expense of the historical context in which Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Now we've already learned in chapter 1 that he was urging Timothy to remain in Ephesus for the specific purpose of combating false teaching that had infiltrated the church. And this false teaching, if you read a lot about 1 Timothy, you learn that it's very hard to identify exactly what was going on, but there are definitely traces of Jewish heresy, there's traces of Greek heresy, so there's a mixture of false teaching that is taking place here. And we learned in chapter 1, Paul gives us some hints of what was happening. Some of these false teachers were focused on genealogies and myths. They were more concerned about the law at the expense of grace. And also there was a sense of sectarianism taking place here in Ephesus. And sectarianism is simply the idea of excessive religious devotion to the group to which you belong. So these false teachers, in addition to proclaiming a false gospel, were also trying to pull away faithful Christians to join their group. Timothy, in our passage today, however, focuses on the issue of prayer. But not prayer in any sort of generic sense, but prayer in relation to the salvation of all people. And before we even dig into the text, I want to define a couple of terms for you that I believe will be helpful. Two terms that you can write down. Gospel call and effectual call. And I'll explain what those two terms mean because it will help you better understand the passage. The first one is the gospel call. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed universally to all people. So in other words, every single Sunday when we open up God's word, when we proclaim the truth of God's word, and I try to make connections from the passage to the explicit gospel, that gospel call, urging people to repent of their sin and believe in faith, is universal in its extent. It means it goes out to all people. There is never a person that we would self-select and say, we do not feel like this person is worthy of hearing the good news of the gospel. So the gospel call is universal in its extent. But that gospel call, as you well know, can be resisted. It can be ignored. People have heard the gospel, many of them, for their whole life and choose not to respond in repentance and faith. So the gospel call can be resisted. However, it is universal in its scope. But there's another term that we often use when we talk about the call of the gospel, and that is the effectual call of the gospel. That is, after the gospel call is proclaimed, there are those who respond through repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit grabs a hold of their heart, softens their heart, 
takes that heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and their response is one of repentance and faith. If you've ever wondered why it's possible for people to hear the gospel their whole life and never respond, it's because of this idea of the effectual call. It's the regeneration that must take place in a person's heart. So while the gospel call is universal in its extent and it goes out to all people, the effectual call only happens to those that respond in repentance and faith. These two terms, I believe, are really important to help us understand our passage today. Because the gospel call, remember, universal in its reach, is for all people, in light of this passage today then, Christians have an obligation to pray for the salvation of all people for three reasons. Number one, because praying for salvation aligns with God's desires. Number two, praying for salvation aligns with the purpose of Christ's death. And then number three, praying for salvation aligns with the mission of the church. Now these three points are actually not original to me. I took them from one of the commentaries I was reading this week. But the outline makes perfect sense and it fits perfectly with this passage. Number one, praying for salvation aligns with God's desires. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is a simple and powerful word That Paul gives to Timothy here. He says first of all. He tells Timothy to pray. We cannot underestimate the significance of what Paul is telling Timothy to do in this passage. Think about what Timothy is up against. What have we already learned in this epistle? He has false teachers in the church who are infiltrating the faithful members. Trying to pull them away from the truth of the gospel. He has church members who are being deceived by these false teachers. Now, we're not given any evidence of this, but it's possible that this false teaching was even causing the church to dwindle in size. Perhaps the giving of the church went down. Perhaps the amount of ministry that was taking place in the church went down. That's all speculation. But anytime false teaching infiltrates the church, a lot of those things can happen. And this is not what Paul urges Timothy to do. He does not tell him, grab all the smartest people in the room. Grab all of the wisest people in the room. Grab all of your most financially lucrative people in the room and come up with a strategy and a plan to fix this. What does he tell him to do? He tells him to pray. Specifically, he says, pray for all people. Apparently some within the church, these false teachers, were not praying for all people. And they were getting some of the other faithful church members in Ephesus to do the same thing. It stemmed from this sectarian mindset that they had. And we have four words that are used in verse 1. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. 
Supplication is a request. It is a statement of a need. When we ask God for a specific need in our own lives, like patience to deal with an annoying coworker, or patience to deal with your children, or healing from an ailment, But we have intercessions as well, or petitions, which we just prayed for this morning. This is is when we go on behalf of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, he uses the generic word there, prayer. And then he ends it with thanksgiving. If we're not careful, we can spend so much of our time in prayer, petitioning on behalf of others, bringing our needs before God, confessing our sin, which are all things that we should do, that we neglect to actually thank God for all of the ways that he is at work in our lives. I know I've been guilty of that, quickly moving through my prayer time and just forgetting to thank God for the breath to wake up that day or for the opportunity to have a job, to have my family, to have good health, to win football games on Saturday. That's a joke, of course. I don't bring those requests before God. But how prone are we to not just thank God for the daily provision that he gives his children? Now, this all, in verse 1, includes those mentioned in verse 2. When Paul says, for kings... And all who are in high positions. In Paul's context, this is a plea to pray for the Roman Empire. The Roman Emperor, who is ruling, as Paul penned this letter to Timothy, is none other than Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68 A.D., Now, I wanted to bring you some examples from Nero of all of the ways in his wickedness and in his evil that he went against everything that Paul and Timothy were trying to accomplish in Ephesus. But Nero was so evil and so wicked that many of the things that I wanted to share with you are not G-rated. And this is the man who Paul and Timothy and the church at Ephesus were praying for. They were praying for an empire who wanted to essentially squash Christianity. So I can say this then confidently. No political ruler, in America especially, in your lifetime, holds a candle to the evil and wickedness that Nero implemented in Rome. I can say it without a shadow of a doubt. In fact, I can even make the argument that no ruler throughout history outside of a handful would even come close to the amount of evil and wickedness and hatred that Nero implemented towards Christians and others in the Roman Empire. So why say all that? If Paul can tell Timothy and the church in Ephesus, to pray for Nero, pray for kings and those in high positions, then brothers and sisters, we can most certainly pray for those who are in positions of leadership that we know. At the local level, at the state level, at the national level. Specifically, we can pray for the salvation 
of our political leaders at every single level of leadership. I wonder what might happen if we spent nearly the amount of time praying for our political leaders as we do listening to talking heads who spray out oftentimes lies and untruths about those that are in leadership. God forbid us when we do not get on our knees for our leaders and pray for their salvation, but we are very quick to listen to podcasts and news stations that spread nothing but slander and gossip. Paul is reminding all of us here to pray for those in positions of leadership. Those we agree with, those we disagree with. Pray that God would draw them to himself. This isn't about Republican, Democrat, Independent. This is about being faithful to what God's word teaches. About praying for those in positions of leadership. But here's the question we have to ask. Why should Christians do this? Why did Paul urge the Ephesian believers to do this? So that through praying, he says, it would lead them to peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. Which is attractive for non-believers to see. This is why we pray for those in positions of leadership. This is why we pray for kings and those in authority. Because when non-believers see Christians on their knees for those in authority and leadership, even those that they don't agree with, non-Christians look at that and say something is different about the way that person lives their life. It is a way to show non-believers That the gospel that has taken root in our hearts is not just lip service, but it is shown in action. So it's a witness for the church at large to be praying for those in positions of authority at all levels. Not to mention, Paul says in verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So God is pleased with his people. When they pray for the salvation of all people, including those in positions of authority. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is really the, the key verse of the entire passage. It says, Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? When we pray... For the salvation of others, including those in positions of authority, we actually are aligning with the desires of God's heart. Now, even though you and me both know, not everyone is saved, right? We know this. To believe that no matter what, a person is going to be saved in the end is to believe what is known as universalism, which is a heresy that has been refuted by the church of Jesus Christ for over 2,000 years. We are not saying, nor is Paul saying here, that every single person who ever lives will be saved. But we do know based on this text and many others, that it is the desire of God's heart that all people will be saved. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, just to use a couple of verses to argue the point. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? These verses, as well as verse 4 in our context, reflect what is known as God's will of disposition, in which he not only offers salvation through the gospel call, but actually desires that lost sinners repent and believe in him. His will of disposition fits perfectly with the gospel call that I defined at the very beginning of the message. So, you are never out of God's will when you pray for the salvation of lost people. Because it aligns with God's desires. The gospel call is for everyone. Listen to what one theologian says. When God calls the sinner to accept Christ by faith, he earnestly desires this. And when he promises those who repent and believe eternal life, his promise is dependable. Even though God desires, however, that all should be saved, we know not everyone is. And this is what you're thinking in your mind. If God desires everyone to be saved, why aren't they? And this is when we must say, because God is holy and because God is just and we are sinful and God must punish sin. But we can rest that in God's perfect plan, he has designed it. So he gets the glory for both those who respond in repentance and faith and those who do not. Here's what we need to understand. When a person responds in repentance and faith and are saved, they are receiving from God grace and mercy. When a person hears the gospel call and does not respond in repentance and faith, They are receiving God's justice. Many of you might be thinking they receive God's injustice, but they don't. Because our God is fully just. So when a person is saved, they are receiving grace and mercy. When a person is not saved, they are receiving the justice of God, which is the punishment for their sin. There is no injustice in the God that we serve. When people do not respond in repentance and faith, that is not because God is unjust. It is because he is holy and righteous and fair and sin must be dealt with. So if you are saved this morning, does that not cause you to get on your knees and offer a prayer of thanksgiving that God in his grace and mercy bestowed salvation upon you? And the Holy Spirit took your heart from a heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh. That is worth a prayer of thanksgiving right there. God sovereignly has orchestrated it in a way That his people will be saved from their sins. So what is our response to this truth in this passage? What Paul tells us to do. We pray. God sovereignly works through the prayers 
of his people. So we pray for the salvation of lost people we know, while also affirming that God is sovereign over salvation and ultimately knows and determines who will be saved. But this doesn't change how we pray. We pray that God in his sovereignty would save those that we know who are not in Christ. And as we pray that, we do our part in proclaiming the gospel to them, urging them to repent and turn in faith to Christ. So number one, praying aligns with God's desires. But number two, praying also aligns with the purpose of Christ's death. In verse 5, Paul talks about Jesus being the mediator between God and man. What is a mediator? It is one who acts on behalf of another party. And this idea of mediator is not unique to the New Testament. If you go back into the Old Testament and you read about the offices of Christ, which are connected here, he fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king. And in the Old Testament... Prophets are those who brought God's word to the people. So the prophet acted as the mediator between God and his people. The king brought God's rule to the people. So when God is acting through David and Solomon and many others, it is supposed to be God's rule over Israel. The king functioned as the mediator between God and the Israelites. And then the priests, those are the ones who represented the people before God's presence. So we see this concept of mediator not just coming into existence here in 1 Timothy 2, but throughout the Bible. But when we think about Christ being our mediator, we're thinking about how he relates to God and how he relates to us. And how he brings those two parties together. How does he do that? In his humanity and in his divinity. So theologically, Jesus' humanity was necessary for at least seven reasons. And I want to give them to you. Number one, to obey where we couldn't. Number two, to die as our substitute sacrifice. Number three, to be our mediator, which is what we're arguing right now. Number four, to fulfill God's purpose for man to rule over creation. Number five, to be our example and pattern in life. Number six, to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. And number seven, to sympathize, as Hebrews tells us, as a high priest. So this is how he is our mediator before God. We needed a representative as a man. Jesus fulfills that in that way. But we know that Jesus' divinity and his deity was also necessary. So why? Number one, only someone who is infinite as God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of those who would believe in him. Number two, the whole storyline of the Bible shows us from Genesis to Revelation that no human being could ever save man but only God himself. This is the whole revelation of Scripture is showing us that. And then number three, 
Only one who was truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man. Now, even though we learned in verse 4 that God desires all to be saved, and that fits within God's will of disposition, and it fits with the desire of his heart, the gospel call of salvation, as we said, is universal. But nevertheless, it is exclusive. What I mean by that is you can only come to God through Jesus. John 14, 6. Jesus himself tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So while the gospel call is universal, it is exclusive in the sense that it is only through Jesus himself that one can be reconciled to a holy God. There is no other way. There is no other religion. There is no other person. There is no good work that we can perform. Jesus Christ must be the one who functions as our mediator. The purpose of Christ's death was for the salvation of his people. He is the only way that we receive access to God without the death of Jesus. There is no hope for wicked and sinful people like you and me. Now connecting Jesus to these functions of prophet, priest, and king. Listen to this quote from Thomas Nettles. He says, As the mediator between God and his people, Jesus Christ fulfills and unifies three offices that are present yet distinct in the Old Testament. Those who hold the office of prophet are those by whom God's people are given necessary knowledge about God. Jesus Christ came as the perfect prophet because he is the very word of God himself. Priests are those by whom God's people are forgiven, justified, and justified and reconciled to God. Jesus came as the perfect priest because it is by his sacrificial death and ongoing life that we are reconciled to God. The kings of Israel were charged with carrying out God's rule on earth. Now Jesus reigns as king over all of creation and exercises God's reign perfectly as God. When we pray... For the salvation of lost people, we are praying in a way that aligns with the purpose of Jesus' death, which was to function as our mediator. And number three, praying for salvation aligns with the mission of the church. I would encourage you, if you were not here last Sunday night, to Look up our podcast and listen to the Delight and Doctrine teaching series that focused on the answer to the question, what is the mission of the church? To summarize, here's what we said last Sunday evening. To go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship Him and obey His commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. This definition comes directly from a book called What is the Mission of the Church? Now look at verse 7. Paul says this, For this 
I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul was appointed to preach the message of Jesus as mediator and as a dying ransom for all people. The reason he says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, is because so many people throughout Paul's ministry doubted his credentials. They doubted his valid testimony of faith in Christ. So throughout many of his letters, he is having to defend his apostleship. Paul had a singular focus in his role as apostle and preacher. And that focus aligns perfectly with the mission of the church that Jesus left for his disciples and now us to carry out in his name. If you read Matthew 28, Mark 13 and 14, Luke 24, John 20, Acts 1-8, over and over again in these passages, right before Jesus ascends to his Father, he tells his disciples what they are to do. And it is to faithfully proclaim the gospel, make disciples, gather them into churches, teach them everything I have commanded so that they can also be witnesses in my name. Perhaps the most convicting aspect of preparing and meditating and writing this sermon is that I realize how little I pray for the salvation of others. My view of God is oftentimes far too small. I don't pray enough for the salvation of lost people because my faith is weak. I also don't pray for the salvation of others because my mind drifts away to other things. Many of those things are actually good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. The question that we always must be asking as a church is not what can we do, but what must we do. And what we must do is proclaim the gospel, is to make disciples. And that assignment, as you read the Bible, is clear. Make disciples. Tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that they can only get through believing in his death and resurrection. Urge people to repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ. Of all the things that Paul could have told Timothy, he tells him to pray Pray for the salvation of lost people. Pray for those in positions of high authority. Pray for their salvation. Remember that God desires in his will for all to be saved in that will of disposition that we talked about. And pray that God would give us that desire. So the only appropriate way to end this message is to pray accordingly. So let's Bow our heads together now. Father, I confess to you this morning that I don't pray nearly enough for the salvation of lost souls. And I ask your forgiveness. Father, I pray that through your spirit you would give me a renewed sense of urgency for this task. 
for the lost family members, friends, neighbors, and co-workers that we have that are not in Christ. I ask that you would open up their hearts to the gospel. Circumcise their hearts. Give them a heart of flesh as you remind us in Ezekiel 11. You are the only one who can remove the heart of stone and give us hearts of flesh. We ask that you put your spirit in the hearts of lost people we know. Free them from their slavery to sin. Remove Satan's binding influence on their lives. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Father, it is my prayer, it is our prayer this morning that you would help those that we know to see the truth of the gospel and to see the wickedness of their own sin. Grant them repentance and faith to believe in the finished work of Christ and to walk in the power of Christ's resurrection. And we pray this in the name of your Son, and his death for us. Amen.